Progressive brings you Flowetry with Flow. A tool called Name Your Price. Get a grip on your spending like an industrial vice. It's nice. Beats rolling the dice. I prefer brown rice. Don't carry dumbbells when you walk on thin ice. Splash. Get insurance based on your budget with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey everybody, welcome to episode two of Stolen Signs from Baseball Prospectus. I'm Kendall Gilmet here with Harry Pavlidis. Hello, Kendall. Hi, Harry. How's it going? It's great. Excellent. Ready, ready I'm to hear some good discussions about uh, pitching metrics today. I think that's a good way of summarizing my level of excitement. <laughs> we're going to be talking about pitching metrics. This is one of my favorite things. So. This is we're going to have a couple of our good friends on. Yep, Jonathan Judge, who we work with at Baseball Prospectus, of course, he's the our lead stats designer, and then he's he's going to be joined by Neil Weinberg from from Fangraphs, who's their basically curator of their glossary, their librarian, as it were. So this is something that uh, came together pretty quickly thanks to these guys. So you know, Kendall, I think. You can t- probably tell from the excitement of my voice that I want the listeners to hear what we have to say. Yes. But there's a whole big story that you need to tell us first about a recent trip that you were on. Yes, for sure. So last week we talked to Jeff Long and Kate Morrison about their upcoming presentation at Sabre Seminar, which it was upcoming. It was upcoming and it happened last weekend. And I was there. And it was excellent. It was a, a great event um, put on by Dan Brooks and Chuck Corb to raise some funds for the Angioma Alliance. And um, they did that. And it was excellent. And it was a, a great, great time to connect with people, some of which were from BP, some fan graphs, some uh, pro team folks, other writers, other um, people just interested in sabermetrics and learning and presenting. So it was a super fun event. Um, we got to see and hear from uh, Ben Charrington, who's the VP of Baseball Operations for the Toronto Blue Jays. And that was a really interesting Q&A that he did. Because uh, he's, he's done that same Q&A previous years as a Red Sox executive. So right, and that, that's Ben coming back and is is uh, an enemy into enemy chance. Right, and as I understand, he uh, Ben Ben took the stage shortly after um, he ended his time at the Boston Red Sox. And uh, oh, that's right, yeah. So that's true. That that was probably a very interesting Q and A panel. Um, that was that was two years ago. Yeah, you know, last year was Dombrowski who replaced him. Or fired him one of the two anyways <laughs> so so that was that was a really really cool um to have him there and to, and to get some of his insights and uh the white Sox were in town and so their general manager rick Hahn was also there did a q a and uh it's it's always super interesting to get a little bit of a peek behind the curtain into a major league front office and what they think about 
analytics and statistics and how they use them and, and also um, they have to deal with it on a personnel level and um, how those things relate to interacting with the people. And uh, so I think that's always an interesting conversation. Um, and it was with, he, he with those broke, guys. He broke news there too, didn't he? Did. He did, yeah. Um, yeah. He, he, there was a question about promoting pitchers and why, you know, they had been maybe slow to promote pitchers. And uh, he, he instructed people to buy tickets to Friday's game and gave a little wink. And, uh, and, Ronaldo Lopez has been announced as a new addition to the White Sox roster, and he'll be starting Friday's game at, uh, what is it called now? Guaranteed Great Field. Huh. So. Who would have thunk it? Yeah. So it, it was a great event. Um, so many great presentations. Too many to really outline all of the great ones. Um, Jason Benetti, who is the um, television um, play-by-play guy for the White Sox emceed the event, and he was uh, funny and interesting, and he was also on a, a media panel that was great. So that was that was a lot of fun too. And um, yeah, so and then and there was stuff about the ball, right? Like Alan, we, I know I saw I couldn't I didn't make it out there, so I have to get Kendall's reviews from yeah. him. But yeah, Alan Nathan updated us on the home run surge, huh? so that was. Yeah, so he... That was a big, big one. Right, he, he talked about that and, um, you know, what parts of the ball or why the ball might be partially responsible, at least, for the home run surge and then also maybe some other factors um, that he, I think, is still looking into based on his presentation. Um, that was great. It was, it was great to um, hear from Dr. Glenn Fleissig about pitch velocity and how that relates to elbow stress. Um, some of those were really interesting because it was a look into, um, you know, very scientifically. Um, so whether it's physics or, you know, like kind of studying the body and, and biomechanics and things like that and, and how that relates to um, pitching injuries. That was really interesting. And then... Um, and Glenn is the director of research or something like that at the American Sports, Sports Medicine, Medicine Institute, MSI. Yep. yep, it works very closely um, from what I understand with Dr. James Andrews. And uh, so it was really... That was really fascinating. And yeah, they do all the cool, like, stress loads and, and, you know, tests that to see what the arm is doing, you know. Right. They actually collaborated with Dr. Fleissig on a paper on how the uh, pitch FX data helps you understand arm angles. And it was right. We actually got to use their biomechanical data, Dan Brooks, and, and he were the main contributors on that uh and they they basically concluded that the whole theory the lensner axis theory was right so that that uh studying the physics and geometry and the biomechanics are you know no small part no small part of this business i think we're going to talk about that later too a little bit yep yeah and then um there was an interesting presentation um, from Jen Mock-Ramos, Ronnie Sokash, and Sean Brody about uh, catcher framing 
and how that might translate from softball players to baseball players. And um, that was a, a, a cool look into that. So, um, and then of course, Kate Morrison and Jeff Long's research about pitch tunnels and sequencing. Um, Jeff was actually not able to make it because of um, crazy flight travel plans falling through, but um, Kate did a great job presenting their information. And um, so to kind of follow up on last week, we can, um, we'll link up their, they have their slides up online. And so we'll uh, put a link to that up in the show notes on baseball prospectus. Yeah, maybe we'll upload a bunch of other stuff. Uh, I'll, talk, I'll talk to some people <laughs> because we have a bunch of, you know, any, any presentations that we found uh, online, we've kind of gathered up. So maybe we can kind of throw those on the podcast page and, and make it easy for people to find them. Yeah, that'd be great. That would be great. All right. So we, um, that's kind of Saber Seminar in a, in a nutshell in a few minutes. Um, it was a great time, great time to meet a bunch of people um, that I had kind of known vaguely online um, and spend some time with them and hang out with them. And so that was really fun. And um, yeah. So and now, now back to the real world. Back to the real world. Saber yeah. Seminar has come and gone. And so we we put out a little call for some questions and trying to understand um, or trying to ask if people had any questions about stats. So we invite you as well to um, either reach us on Twitter at stolen underscore signs, um, or you can email us at stolen underscore signs at baseballperspectus.com. If you have any questions you'd like to ask us or ideas for topics or guests or anything like that, we certainly welcome that. And um, really, uh, I think are going to kind of depend on that to shape where we're headed and what we talk about. Uh, we actually got one email. We did. So, we got one yeah. from uh, Nate. And so I am going to read his email. And um, Harry, if you can maybe answer this, I think you're probably a little more suited to answer it than I am, but I can try. It says, Hi guys, I want to learn how to analyze baseball data in R, specifically StatCast data. I'm a computer science major, but my emphasis is on software development, so I've never dealt with coding for data science purposes. Should I? A. Buy the book, Analyzing Baseball Data with R. B. Save my money and take the free Saber edX course that also covers SQL. Or C. Buy the book and take the course. Yeah, there's, there's no wrong answer. No. Yeah, I mean, he could choose any of the three options. I mean, it depends, right? I mean, this is, uh, depends on how you want to learn. Uh, the, and there's a couple different you know aspects to this you know for Nate and anyone else who's trying to think how do I how do I go about learning this and I think it might be a little different for Nate because he's a, got some education he's computer science but I'll still kind of answer it in a general way so I don't think that will have too big of an impact whether or not you have a computer science background or programming experience or not if you want to pick up the skills to analyze baseball data and r is a really good choice you could choose python 
there's other languages, newer languages like Julia and Go that I'm not as familiar with, but those are also choices that people can explore. So it's a good idea to choose R because it is it is a open source, pretty easy easy to you know get started with and find communities. Um, and there's a book by Max Marshy and Jim Albert called Analyzing Baseball Data with R. And that's a very good resource. You can also take an online class at X Saber course. There's Saber 101 course that Tufts offers as well, I think, online. Um, Not all these things are free. So it's just going to depend on how you learn. I mean, if you need the structure to something that guides you, gives you deadlines, then then take the course. If you're more self-paced and just pick things up on your own, then then buy buy the book or or a book isn't always the perfect reference because especially with technology and baseball statistics time moves very quickly so if you're going to buy that book it's a good book to buy i definitely agree with it uh the notion of, of doing that but don't just buy the book check out their blog check out newer more current resources online as you pick up the fundamentals make sure that you're using the newest things because you know, it's okay to learn with slightly old stuff. That's totally fine. You can cut your teeth on something that's a couple years old, but be prepared also to to change a couple things and tune a couple knobs. So, to answer Nate's question, it's, it's it depends on how how you learn. If you're coming from that academic background, it's a free course. You might want to do that uh, because as a developer some experience you may find it frustrating that the book is already a couple years old and doesn't take advantage of all the newest packages and statistics so maybe for nate you know focus on the course but for the most part i definitely recommend that book i want to copy myself uh and the blog that goes with it so one let me just touch back on a little bit you mentioned finding or like r has a good community so mm-hmm. Do you, uh, it seems to me, and I know in my own personal coding experience, having a community, having people to ask has been super important and very helpful. Um, is there a community that exists that you know of um, in some form? Obviously, there's Twitter, which I would imagine would be strong, strong, strong in yeah, this. Yeah, I mean, that's basically you get on Twitter and there's, a, you know, follow people who are, you know, Jim Albert and, and the people who work at that blog, follow them, follow Carson Seward, who, who wrote the PitchRx package, which is an R-based library to scrape and manipulate and graph PitchFX data. You know, so there's things out there already. And sometimes that's enough. Some people just want you to learn from code. If you already know some code, just, just go get those packages, look at the source code, teach yourself what's going on. There's so many different ways to go about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I rely on the good fortune of working with a lot of people who are experts, but I think in general, I, I would expect it to be, you would either find sufficient community or be directed towards the perfect community by, by starting on Twitter, because that, that's where, in my ex- recent experience, that's where a lot of uh, the newest ideas are discussed and it's where questions can get answered and, and get direct access to the, to the people who create the packages and wrote the books and things like that. They're, you know, that, that's what Twitter's for. Totally. Cool. All right. Well, thank you, Nate, for your email. And again, um, definitely, if you have a question that you'd like us to answer, or more likely Harry to answer, um, reach us at stolen underscore signs at baseballperspectus.com. 
or reach out to us on Twitter at stolen underscore signs. And we would love to talk from talk to you. We would love to hear from you. It's an email, so you can't sound like talking if you give them. But that's good enough. We would love to read the words and respond with words. Yes, we will read and we'll we'll talk to you. Actually, we will talk to you. I take that back. You'll, we'll read. Never mind. Anyway, send us emails. We'll answer questions. And after this, we will talk with Jonathan Judge and Neil Weinberg um, and get their thoughts on pitching metrics and learn a lot. So come on back. All right, welcome back. And today we are going to be speaking with Jonathan Judge from Baseball Prospectus and Neil Weinberg from Fangraphs. Thank you guys for joining us. Glad to be here. All right. Um, so first what we want to do is we want to get to know you a little bit and understand um, kind of what's brought you to this place um, as you delve into pitching metrics and all of that. So, um, Neil, do you want to go ahead first and um, kind of talk about where you are now and how you got here? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm probably most easily known as the Fangraphs librarian. And if that doesn't make sense to you, I sort of manage the Fangraphs glossary. So all those stat explanations and things uh, that you may have seen at Fangraphs are my handiwork. Um, 
I also write for a number of other places, but that's not as important maybe for the present discussion. Um, I sort of got into it by accident. I was always a baseball fan and, you know, got into looking at more advanced metrics, you know, in over time in high school and college. Um, but I was just kind of bored one day in the first year of grad school and started a blog about the Tigers and did some stat explanations there caught on, did a little bit of work at Beyond the Box score uh, over time, and eventually um, uh, Fangraphs asked me to come and sort of revamp their library um, uh, th- maybe three years ago now. And so I've been doing that for a while, written for a variety of places. Uh, I'm just kind of really into uh, making complicated things accessible, and so that's sort of where I am at this point. So th- this is, seems to be a, a building theme here where, you you know, I, I think one of our guests last week said a similar thing. I was bored in grad school. So <laughs> tell us more about that. I mean, what, what were you studying? Did you finish studying that? And is that what your career is? Or did baseball consume what you thought you had set out to do? Uh, so I was in a Ph.D. program in political science Um and I got the master's degree and decided after that point that I did not want to continue with the PhD. Uh, so I actually work now as a nonpartisan research analyst uh, with the Michigan legislature. And so basically my day job is is what I do for baseball, but for other things. So uh, legislators and staff ask me questions about complicated things, and I do research and distill them down, much like I do with with baseball stuff. Uh, and so I was, uh, you know, I got some good statistical training in grad school and, and learned certain good research habits, but uh, I decided I wanted to do something else and sort of picked up baseball as a hobby on the side, and, and that's where I am now. How much stats education was there in a poli sci? Oh, it's ex- it's extensive. I mean, the the field has really become very quantitative, which I like that kind of stuff. But I was not enjoying the application of it, maybe in in the field. And so we did, you know, all you know. I'm sure Jonathan will will talk shortly about mixed models and all that kind of stuff. And we did that, you know, in the first couple of years of the program, there was really intensive statistical training. So I've got, you know, that kind of background. I never quite learned the mechanics of the, of the R code quite as well as some other people on this podcast. Uh, but I, uh, I learned the background uh, and the, sort of the underlying math uh, through my training. So, Jonathan, you have a similar, I think, twist where the statistical work that you do for in baseball is also something that has become central, perhaps, or at least may intend to become central in your in your day job. Is that true? Or did I screw that up? So, no, I mean, unfortunately, I would say I, I don't use it as much in my day job as I would like. Um, I, I weave it in every once in a while, but... Unfortunately, when most people are having disagreements, um, you know, rational, uh, dispassionate um, assessment of each side's position is not um, uh, the number one technique that is used. So unfortunately, lawyering remains uh, about a lot of the same old stuff that doesn't work particularly well, but makes people feel good about themselves. So so there we are. (laughs) Yeah, but I know you've published or have done some things that that bridge the gap to some degree. That is true. We've done some uh, some work 
uh, with um, with like insurance fines and federal government regulatory fines for different agencies, and just try to try to find ways to kind of discern when when an agency says that it's you know this conduct is really bad, whereas that conduct is okay. Um, you know, w- if they mean that and it's actually consistent behavior, how do we kind of tease out? you know, which factors seem to matter more. So we've done a little bit of that, publishing a little bit of that. Um, but I say at this point, that's still sort of something that's not really integral to the practice. It's more on the side. Um, hopefully it does become more integral as uh, as things progress. So we can kind of understand how Neil's, you know, background and education naturally fit. How did, how did you, and did you have a brewer's blog to start or, you know, uh, how did we find? How did you get to BP? So that yeah, that's a says, weird. Says the guy who hired you here. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, that's a kind of a strange story. Um, I did uh, start. Uh, my interest in baseball is much more recent, um, and I was also bored in in grad school. But um, the the Brewers in the late '90s and early 2000s. Um, if you were bored, watching them wouldn't necessarily be your first choice. Um, but uh, as the, the club started showing a little bit more commitment uh, and interest in winning and started doing so, I kind of started checking in again. And I would say I did write a little bit for a brewer's blog, Disciples of Euchre, um, a few years ago. And then I was asked to write a little bit at the Hardball Times, did that. And... Um, and at some point, I made some comment to Harry about wanting to help sometime if there was any project around. And it turned out that he had had a project he wanted to work on, get the framing and projects. He, yeah. And then he took me out and bought me a lot of alcohol and then made a proposal for me to work on something. And I agreed um, and then uh, started working on it an awful lot. So it was all kind of abrupt, actually. Yeah, so I mean, that's kind of abrupt. Abrupt is, that's interesting. And you've mentioned something else and, and you know, about how you're more of a recent baseball fan. And, and you know, were, did you grow up as a baseball fan and, you know, as a kid and, and were, when did your interest in stats and stuff, you know, come about? Was it, was it, you know, when, we can't ask this question to judge because he didn't watch baseball as a child, I guess, but... Neil, yeah, for, yeah. I mean, through you. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I've been watching baseball my entire life. You know, I remember watching games as early as you know five or six years old, uh, and you know, growing up as a Tigers fan, that was some extremely, extremely dark years uh, for a while there. Uh, you know, probably the first sixteen years of my life, you know, they were terrible, and uh, you know, I've. I've just kind of always had a, a interest in math and, and that kind of thing. So the numbers appealed to me. And I like to tell people uh, that I sort of accident like I sort of accidentally discovered some of the, the sabermetrics kind of things uh, because I would always have conversations watching games with my dad about why sort of the mainstream statistics like didn't properly value a player, but I didn't have any knowledge of like the statistics that did exist or were starting to exist at that time. So I would always point out, you know, this is why this, you know, this guy's saves aren't a good representation or something like that. Um, and so then as the internet sort of, 
gobbled up all these statistical things in baseball reference and fan graphs and BP sort of grew on the internet. Uh, I discovered the numbers and everything like that, and that became a big part of my baseball watching experience. So you, do you, are you old enough to remember the Trammell Whitaker years, or is that predate you? So I remember the very end of, of Trammell's career, but I, uh, for the most part, did not see that happen. I grew up in the Bobby Higginson, Damian Easley, Davy Cruz era, which is uh, not, you can't really pull out a lot of exciting things that happened in that time period. That's a step down. That's a step down. <laughs> a bit. That's going to leave a different impression than the people a generation before you or half a generation. All right, guys. Well, thanks for introducing yourselves. And we will be right back to dig a little bit deeper into pitching metrics. We are going to dig into pitching metrics and kind of some history and then um, try and understand a little bit more of where we are and where we're headed. So when we look back on determining what a good pitcher is, we know that um, Cy Young won the most games with 511, so he was a really good pitcher. And then... um, we kind of move on from that, and so we determine good pitchers because they pitch and um, they win games, and that's good. And then, um, and then, kind of different statistics come along, and we can kind of track those. So, Neil or Jonathan or Harry, do you guys want to jump in and kind of take us through some of the different? Um, pitching metrics we've had kind of throughout history and and then maybe track how that's evolved and um, kind of then bringing us into some modern times and, and better understanding of, of pitching metrics and measuring what's a good pitcher and what's not a good pitcher. Yeah, sure. I mean, I can, I can start with that. I mean, I think you set the stage pretty well. There was the triple crown pitching statistics have you know kind of been with us for a long time. The wins, ERA, and strikeouts have been you know what gets talked about for the most of baseball history. And the idea of if you're on the mound when your team is winning, you're good. Well, we can refine that a little more and say, you know, the number of runs you give up is a good metric of of how good you are. But then you know. As time has gone on, there's been a growing realization that what happens while a pitcher is in the game is maybe not a good enough refinement on how well a pitcher performed. A pitcher is one of nine defenders on the field at a given time, and they certainly have the biggest role in preventing runs of anyone on on the field at the time. Um, but they're not the only participant. And so sort of maybe really in the last 15 or 20 years, there's been an effort to narrow things down and try and develop pitching metrics that zero in on what the pitcher's contribution was. Um, And I think, you know, that 
maybe the watershed moment is, you know, when Forrest McCracken wrote his article BP about sort of introducing dips theory, which is defense independent pitching statistics. Um, and that leads us into fielding independent pitching and the things that came after it, um, sort of metrics creating this idea that pitchers control certain outcomes and certain outcomes more than others. Um, to that matter. So strikeouts and walks, home runs, hit batters. Clearly the defense isn't playing much of a role in that. And I know that, you know, we've learned since that, you know, catchers play a little bit of a role in some of those things too. Um, But then also that they don't control the outcomes on balls and play nearly as much as they do on these other factors. And so that gave us FIP and XFIP. And we can talk about some of these in more detail, but this sort of idea that let's create pitching statistics that, try and capture just what the pitcher's responsible for and sort of average out everything else. And that got us, I don't know, maybe until about three or four years ago when things start, we started to dive a little deeper and, you know, you know, judge and Harry uh, played a big role in that trying to go beyond that. Um, but the one thing I'll say before I sort of stop this little, this little speech is I think Part of what we've maybe blended and lost a little bit the last couple of years is that dips is, I think, a framework. It's a conceptual idea that you want to remove the contributions of other players on the field when you're measuring pitchers. You know, I think dips and FIP get kind of blended together when really they're different things. Dips is the idea that you want to remove the quality, like the performance of the defense from a pitcher's performance when you're trying to evaluate the pitcher. FIP was one iteration that has some problems about how it executes it. And in my opinion, and I know the creators might disagree, I think I think of DRA as a further iteration of DIPS theory, a more advanced version of DIPS theory. DIPS is a paradigm shift from anything that happens while the pitcher's there counts against them to let's try and refine that. And then we've had a number of, of attempts to do that. Yeah, I agree. I think that's really the, a good way of putting it. Before we dive too far into that, I kind of want to go back to a couple of things that you said at the beginning, it's like we, we, where we had had the triple crown pitching line. You know, It makes sense to be interested in wins and losses and, and, and runs, earned runs or just runs. I mean, right? Because that's the currency of baseball. So there's it's very, it makes a whole lot of sense. It's not like this; it was an irrational thing. And second of all, the way the game was played, that was kind of sufficient for a long time. So part of the quote-unquote sabermetric revolution has been to challenge these you know assumptions and question how we do things, which is great. But you know, and I definitely am part of that like notion that you, the win is not useful today. But if we, you know, if you do look back over the course of someone's career, it starts these these crude metrics become more meaningful. And back when baseball was played in a, in a kind of a different way, and teams weren't managed the way they are with all these, you know, bullpen specialists. Uh, you know, back when you had two starting pitchers or or four starting pitchers, uh, and that, that got you through the season. The wins, the guys with more wins, may actually have been better more often than the guys with less. They were on the field associated with that winning, but it was such an indirect measure. And I think that every iteration, it's like where everything is about getting to wins in the end. It's it's about becoming more and more indirect in how we measure it. 
And I think that's kind of the way I look at the continuum where, you know, you start with this very much the team win. Okay, well, how many runs did they give up? Okay, how many of those runs were, quote, earned? Okay, well, you know, then then what did we do after that? We got into the, the notion of fielding independent pitching, which has been revolutionary and extremely useful to, you know, which is, there's a reason why we, it's so popular and because it is useful. It does, you know, FIP does tell us a lot of things, but I think the key thing there is that we don't want to forget the other events. We don't want to forget the, all the other balls in play. And that, and that's where, you know, dips is not about, you know, being more uh, uh, being fancier or smarter or, or or anything else. It's about accepting that there's more and more things that are indirectly impacted. You know, you have to get further and further away from, you know, the win from the run. And it's now turning around the other way, you kind of get a little further away from the pitcher and measure all the measure the things on the other side of the pitcher that are influencing how many runs are happening, how many wins are occurring. So it's it's actually accepting and taking in more context, and I think when you get to that level of complication, it became kind of it becomes difficult. So some of the pitching metrics that tried to get after that were you know at BP we had both Sierra, which uh, Fangraph published also for a while, still does. I'm not sure. I forget to be honest. Yeah. Uh, uh, fair run average was the pitching metric uh, here when I when I arrived. Um, and now we have deserved run average. And all these things, I think, are all, all attempting to do similar things, which is to more appropriately account for the context. Um, but it still, you know, all goes back to how many runs were scored against this pitcher and how many do we blame them for. Uh, and it's, that should still, at the end of the day, tie back to teams winning baseball games because the way baseball is played, the win isn't going to tell us anything about a pitcher anymore. And I, and I know I'm probably preaching to the choir when it comes to what I hope is our audience and expect maybe to be our audience for this. But every time I turn on a baseball game, they tell you, I just saw a, a two, you know, Chris Sale, his performance compared to Clayton Kershaw was based on a win-loss record on a, on a major league baseball game. So it's like, okay, I understand where we were 100 years ago or 30 years ago even. But right now we have to embrace all this crazy stuff. And that's kind of where Judge comes in because <laughs> because he's crazy enough. Well, so. the, the, the thing is, I think also, um, I, you know, a lot of baseball's viewing populace, I believe, does skew older. So, I mean, it, it could very well be that the producers are, in their mind, um, you know, sort of presenting what they think a lot of their audience wants to see. Um, now, how those same producers can then turn around and want to do bullpen interviews is is beyond me and beyond everybody, I think. But um, but yeah, I think that's really that's really true. I mean, it, it's it, things are getting so specialized and there are so many moving parts now that I mean, a lot of a lot of it, you could say, is us trying to look deeper within the game. But a lot of it is is us just trying to keep up. Um, you know, when you've got these these the, you know relievers shuffling in and out of innings, you've got people who are uh, you know increasingly not allowed to pitch to batters a third time. Um, you've got uh, to the point where uh, you know we've got teams with like 
two or three person benches uh, of position players. And <laughs> it's it's just apportioning credit has gotten more complicated than ever, um, particularly with stranded runners and such. And so I think it's it's pretty natural to sort of try to develop these these ways to try and pick out the pieces that each pitcher actually contributed and try to and try to apportion it. Um, which isn't always isn't always very easy, but um, but yeah. So I think I, I I look at it a lot of the same way. I think the idea of seeing DRA as an evolution of dips is really interesting, and I I think that I actually may agree with that. I hadn't thought of it that way before, but the the thing with with I mean, FIP is certainly the most sort of famous statistic from that um, general line of thinking of the sort of defense independent line of thinking. And I, the thing about FIP is that it has unfortunately become a bit of a talisman for analysis in the sabermetric community. Um, so, sort of previous generation sabermetric analysis, I'd say anyone who has been writing a lot um, and doing analysis of the previous even five or 10 years, it, it's gotten to the point where it's treated I mean, well, let's say just what I think FIP is. FIP is a really good descriptive statistic. I think it does a good job of sort of telling you how many runs a pitcher probably gave up in a uh, in an outing. Um, it's pretty close to that. It, it it's simple to calculate. It, it is um, you know it's very nifty uh, in that way. But it it has started to being used so consistently as some sort of oracle. Um, it's like you you see this all the time. Um, you know, this is his FIP, this is his ER, this is his ERA. Um, well, obviously, you know, this ERA is not along for this world. And and that's kind of just an astonishing thing to say. And it and yet we kind of see it all the time. And it it, it frustrates me very much. Um, so this is the idea that the FIP is the truth and the ERA is going to be pulled closer to that truth. Correct. And and there's some very mild truth to that, but I don't think it's for the reasons that people understand. I, I mean, FIP does consider, you know, the between raw value and frequency, you know, three of the most important events in the game. So in that respect, it, it is a good summary. Um, it, and it also, you know, because it is so influenced by home runs, it is going to, you know, track the number of runs that you grow, you give up fairly well. Um, it also has a narrower range than ERA does. So almost kind of by default, it's going to be closer um, to where you end up when you inevitably sort of regress back toward uh, where most major league pitchers are. But it, it, again, it's it's sort of people sort of hang it out there as sort of the beacon of where a, a player is going to go. And and I think the sabermetric community pretty quickly realized that that's not true, um, at least the sort of analysts have. But I sort of feel like uh, the sort of writing community really hasn't. Um, and, you know, there have been some you know, improvements and innovations like um, like XFIP, which tries to account for sort of home run luck a little bit. Um, and, and Sierra, which does a good job of incorporating sort of ground balls and trying to understand that that has an effect too. But um, I feel like those, 
have never really quite caught on in the same way. And not that they necessarily should, but if people are going to insist on having sort of a, a proof in the pudding, I'll just keep using that term again, oracle metric of what a pitcher really ought to be charged with, um, they probably should find something else because FIP, I don't think it was really ever designed to do that. And yet it's kind of being pressed into service that way consistently by folks who I don't think understand that that's not a good idea. I think there's a, a, a couple of good things you sort of touched on there. I think one thing that I have tried to sort of stick into the discourse is that the idea that FIP and some of these other metrics, I think, you know, maybe all of them that have come past ERA, the uh, as sort of an original sin of trying to scale the numbers so that they look like ERA or runs aloud has actually made it more confusing to sort of the general public because we sort of treat this idea of here's their ERA or their runs aloud here's their FIP, that's probably a better representation of their true talent and their performance. And I think we'd all agree that's true. I think we'd all agree DRA is much better than ERA as well and all these things. Um, but people sort of treat it as, oh, that's the truth. We're gonna, the ERA is going to look more like that. Oh, here's their DRA. Their runs allowed is going to look more like that. And sort of created this idea in their minds that there is, we actually, we're putting forward a statistic that is, you know, truth. And so I try and get people to use the plus and minus stats um, so that they're sort of not in the mindset of we're really what we're exactly measuring. Um, I don't I'm not don't think I've been successful, but I think a big part of this is people picked up on FIP because it helped them win their fantasy baseball league. Mm -hmm. And it's straightforward. <laughs> it looks like something you're familiar with. And so it became a very successful statistic in the sense that people, you know, a good number of people started understanding what it was and basically what it meant and how they could use it to be sort of successful in what they were, they cared about, about baseball. And I think where the next generation is sort of, you know, in the going through growing pains is FIP, I think is much better than ERA. I think the next generation metrics FIP has already absorbed a lot of the things that ERA missed. And every step further, there's a diminishing return aspect of it. And so the general public has a more difficult time seeing why this new thing is better. And when it's more complicated, they tune out. I think that happened to FIP at the beginning. Um, and I think it's just a process of showing why these new things are better and improved uh, that takes it takes a while to sink in. You know, as a society, we're not, you know, super scientifically minded. I think that we don't really think through what does it mean? What do all the probabilities mean? What does the linear weights mean? How does it what does it mean when all these different things? I think there is, however, a gut understanding of what these statistics are telling you. And one of the things that I try and communicate to people is that there's sort of this underlying, uh, call it a model for how pitching qualities translate to giving up runs. Um, and it's a very complicated thing. There are all these kind of factors that go into it, and it's very hard to sort of map out exactly what causes what and what's responsible for what. But we do have a sense strikeouts, walks, home runs 
big factors. And then you start going down the list. There are these other pieces, you know, the quality of the framing, uh, you know, their ability to maybe control contact, getting fly balls, these things. People have a good intuitive sense of how these things matter. But when you try and put numeric values on it, that's where it gets really complicated. And getting people to sort of buy into that is sort of the next challenge. And you've got to get better and better at it because one thing that, you know, one thing that I'm always really impressed by is that for all the talk that we have about FIP and XFIP and Sierra and DRA and all these great statistics, you know, the KW ERA, the strikeouts and walk ERA that like Tango invented or whatever 15 years ago is like really good already. It's, you know, all these things are little marginal steps better. Yeah. And so if you know strikeouts and walks, that's a lot of the information. And so adding more information gets things a little better, but it's hard to sort of get that buy-in when you're not making the leap forward all the time. I think that's really a key point is that these are just refinements of the quantum leaps. I mean, I don't know, the, uh, you know, this is we're, we're applying dips theory, you know, that that's kind of what BRA is to me. It, it's, it's, there's things that of all the things that happen on the field after, after a ball is pitched, they vary a great deal. In terms of what their outcomes are, what their underlying events are, th- they vary a great deal in terms of how much the control the pitcher had, and so that's that's the the key crystallization of thought that I think you know that Voros really laid down and that we've all been working off since. I, I think the couple of things really ring out to me here. Um, uh, talking about presenting things as runs, you know, put it on the ERA scale. Uh, that that's something that we we talked about at BP in general as all our stats should be able to be reduced to a run value and there therefore a a win value uh, and and further extension which I actually don't agree with but which so, you know Dan Brooks our good, our good friend and colleague uh, feels probably more strongly in terms of being in favor of is that everything should then have a, a dollar value as well. So that, that gets, you know, super crazy complicated, I think, and it gets a little too, it looks really concrete, but it's actually very abstract. So I think that's something, you know, that in the experience of applying runs as a very important part to the first collaboration Jonathan had with us here at BP, which is on, on picture framing, uh, you know, catcher framing and that that we've presented as runs and put it into the into the into our warp statistics so it's part of you know your, it's part of your catcher total value that we put on the screen part of me regrets that because a lot of the times people are like, i don't believe in the runs i don't believe in how you translate the runs and it's like well let's just talk about the skill the baseball skill that framing is about and i feel that sometimes the make it consumable and make it part of everything and contextualize it is also taking it to the point where if you, if you dismiss that part of it, you're, you're, you're dismissing the, the kind of cool underlying information that's actually there. So your CSAA, your called strikes above average is, is, a, is a more abstract number. Um, putting things on that 100 scale on a plus minus scale, you know, I think that is, really helpful i absolutely totally when you were saying that i was like yes i absolutely get it he's right you definitely should be encouraging people to do that there's places where i think we should be doing that more but as you continued i was also thinking 
But if we don't put it on that run scale, the ERA scale or a batting average scale for, for an offensive stat, uh, it may be hard to make it mainstream. So it's like which audience, you know, it's a, it's a lot of this goes down to which audience you're trying to address and which question you're trying to answer. So when do you use the plus minus version? Yeah, so when I do think, you use the base version, you know? I think one of the things that, that I've come to think over the last few years is that we scaled everything to look like another statistic. So WOBA looks like on base percentage, true average looks like batting average, mm-hmm. you know, ER, FIP looks like by, ERA. This is by design. By, by design, we did all these things because the idea was we want to make the statistic look familiar so people buy into it. And I think yeah. that helped at the first step, but I think it has led people to be less uh, careful in how they use it. And so – because and I think one of the big things is people talk about FIP as this, you know, is it – what should have happened or what did happen. And I harp all the time. It is what did happen. This is a accounting of these few metrics, these few numbers based on linear weights. It's really WOBA for pitchers using different statistics. It's Mm -hmm. not created like ERA. It is a linear weights based context neutral statistic. It has nothing to do with the order of events or anything like that. And we put it on this scale. And so people think of it, I think in the wrong way and i was something you you said you know about uh framing made me think of sort of defensive runs saved and uzr and you know the all the different permutations yeah. of that is that i spend you know a, spent a fair chunk of time uh working with people who work in baseball broadcasting about trying to get metrics on the air and how they understand them and things like that and i can't tell you how many times like baseball kind of people do not grasp DRS and UZR and defensive statistics because they don't the translation of when we're talking about a run saved versus a run on the field. So they make a diving catch with the bases loaded and they're like, no, you saved three runs. Well, no, that's not really what we're talking about. And so that scale is very confusing. They totally buy into it when you're talking about, okay, well, what about the ball they don't get to rather than the error? Or what about, you know, holding the guy, you know, at first instead of advancing to second? Those are the things that make a lot of sense. Like you were saying, this underlying cool information we have about framing gets lost when we try and present it in a way that's too close to what already exists in other forms and i totally agree with you that we do need to have it does need to be connected to run values and win values so when we put together sort of a wins above replacement or a dollar value or sort of an end result kind of thing it all works together but i think when we're presenting the information sort of at the baseline level putting it on a different scale is actually more useful because it keeps it doesn't it puts people in a different mindset that I think makes them more receptive to the information um, rather than trying to compare it to something they already know. And I think that scale is and choosing that scale and moving things from scale to scale, Jonathan is a lot more complicated and treacherous than is we people typically assume. And I think you alluded to this earlier about the narrower distribution of FIP. 
creating kind of an artificially more conservative mean. Therefore, it's it more likely to look like the mean that the ERA regresses to. So I know you spent a lot of time looking at the shape of distributions. And I was, I was wondering what kind of mathematical thoughts were ringing around your head. Uh, it, past it's, minutes. Yeah, it's um, it's hard. Um, I uh, one of the favorite um, graphs that I put together, not for its quality, because none of my um, illustrations have ever really met that standard. But the it, 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 yeah, uh, sorry. Um, but base R graphics. Um, what do you expect? Um, but you know, one of the things that Colin. Wires did when he was first explaining why, you know, the great Sierra exodus from BP um, it was he was complaining that so many in his view of these metrics um, and ironically, he ex he was exiling Sierra and proclaiming that FIP was good enough for us at the time. So this is all very richly ironic. Um, but he he basically plotted the distribution of Sierra compared to FIP and and said, you know, look, he said, I think Sierra's maybe getting some things right, but it's, it's, it's compressing the distribution. And, and I, I did something similar with the first sort of DRA article, which seems like a long time ago, but it was like, okay, here is, you know, here is, you know, runs allowed per nine innings. And then here is FIP and then here is XFIP and here is Sierra. And, and you could just watch this distribution, just lose weight um, as it kept getting compressed more and more toward the center. And, and sure. I mean, I, the point that those folks are making is that we can, we can get closer to where they're more likely to be. And, and the answer is, well, sure you can. Um, there's, there's something in me that, uh, you know, sort of on April Fool's Day or something wants to announce that, I, you know, we should just pick um, the perfect, you know, projection for every player. We'll just put them right at a, you know, a 4.29 ERA or something. And then, you know, try us. Let's see how well we do. Um, and I, I'm kind of frightened that we'll actually do fairly well <laughs> um, doing that. And it, it's so it's it is it is hard and it's hard to fit a distribution and it's hard to sort of decide what you think the meaningful distribution of runs sort of really is. Um, there's there's a related issue I wanted to talk about. Um, hopefully this will this conversation will become less less depressing soon. Um, but the other the other sort of curse that we have is that sabermetric websites spend a, an awfully large amount of their time um, analyzing something that baseball teams, smart baseball teams, do not care about one bit, which is the value of past performance. And so, you know, FIP, of course, is used at, at Fangraphs to value, to assign, you know, win run value and win value to past pitcher performance. Um, DRA has a lot of interesting qualities, but it exists first and foremost for one reason, and that is to assign a value to past performance, what is already over and done with. And so in a sense, we're chasing something. We're chasing like the best, most likely average performance we can find. And so that's sort of why we can sort of keep trying to refine, 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 and drill down to what the most likely pitcher contribution was. But the fact is, I, I think from a big picture perspective and certainly from a team valuation perspective, there comes a point where almost all of this is swamped by the everyday variance in baseball anyway. So one another reason why, you know, the, the more esoteric you get, the less interest you get, I think, is because at some point it does feel like you are 
refining for the sake of refining and demonstrating the value in sort of a larger picture is sort of tough to do. So I don't have a great solution to that. I don't think we're going to stop desiring to know how many wins a pitcher probably contributed. Um, that's important. We, we have ceremonies every summer celebrating people who are really good at that. Um, so it's important, but I, I think the fact that, you know, these sort of have to exist to sort of hand out ribbons to players as well, at least in sort of sabermetric thinking um, is another sort of barrier because that's again, something that I think your average front office just doesn't care about. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's not relevant. So there's, there's three things that you just hit on there. One is, you know, who's, the, who's the Cy Young award winner? Who, who is the, my best pick for fantasy in some scale of time? And, uh, like, let's say a short scale, like immediate, like this week or whatever. Uh, and then the third thing is, you know, projection, like just more traditional future looking projection, like Kokoda or steamer, uh, Zips will pick your pick your favorite. They're all you know. Just pick Marcel. It's good enough. Again, same thing. Simple, simple is good. Then you refine them. So you have these different uses for or different questions. Excuse me for you know who's the Cy Young Award winner? Who's the best pitcher? So I'm going to take DRA real quick and run them across those three things. DRA would be, is probably really good. I think for picking the Cy Young Award winner because you know it, it's trying to say, we understand what happened around this pitcher. This is what they deserve to give up. I don't think it's good for your fantasy pick because it's not what we expect the pitcher to give up next week or next month or next year. Now, it happens to have a lot of predictive value, which I can you know judge if we feel like you can talk more about that. But the, 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 the fact that DRA accounts for this guy's crappy defense playing you know, in, a, in a band box – against the you know 1927 Yankees every game that's you don't want to use that cleaned up piece of information to make your to say okay I'm going to start this guy in fantasy next week because he is going to give up seven runs and you are going to get charged for those seven runs correct so it's like you only deserve four mazel tov uh but then the other one is the projection you know what's the input to the projection and I have this crazy thing that you know it's not the stats that we use. It's not the earn run average. It's the, it's the components, right? We actually project off components of, of things. But where the more sophisticated projections are going to come are going to be actually using like pitch FX data, track man, stat cast data on what a pitcher is doing. Like this is their stuff and this is how it goes and this is how it works. And this is how stuff like that typically works. And if you continue to have them using their stuff that way, or if you project them to use their stuff differently or to get new stuff or to lose their velocity or to gain some velocity, it's more about modeling that behavior and the skills and the techniques. That's kind of flying car stuff in a way, but that's a lot closer to what projection is with scouting and looking at what the future and envisioning what a player is going to look like. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you may both made some, some good points there, especially, you know, Jonathan talking about, you know, this backwards looking idea of how much was something, how valuable was something in the past, getting that exactly right is valuable in the sense that we are trying to use that as a way to figure out, how to solve the problem that Harry just brought up, which is how what's going to happen in the future. We're trying to look back as sort of 
to test ourselves to figure out how something is going to happen in the future. And it's, you know, and I, this idea of, you know, if you do, you know, doing pretty good, getting pretty close is enough for a lot of people. And we are sort of trying to take, you know, more and more refinement on something that's really, really complicated and we aren't going to quite figure out because this is driven by the components of it. So it's not just strikeouts, it's the individual pitch, it's the movement, it's the location, all those kind of things. And one thing that has really struck with me and I've thought about it all the time, you know, since it happened is was either a year ago or two years ago when Russell Carlton at BP wrote something about how much we think pitcher talent varies throughout a season. Um, and this idea of, you know, we've kind of in sabermetrics have had this idea that true talent doesn't vary that much, but outcomes vary a lot because baseball has this really big random component. And so maybe you're 3.5 runs allowed pitcher, but even if you pitch sort of the same all the time, there's going to be a lot of variation around that number. And he introduced the idea, which I think is probably true to some extent, but I have no idea how to capture it, that actually true talent fluctuates a lot. Maybe not you know, in dramatic ways, but maybe some weeks a batter is a, you know, a 120 WRC plus hitter. And the next week his true talent is actually 140 for a whole variety of reasons. I have, I, no I, have, idea an, how- I have an even more radical theory on that. Okay. That, that there is no such thing. There's that measuring true talent is folly. Yeah. Well, I mean, to some extent, there is a there's a there is a true talent. I think difficulty in measuring it is. See, I don't think we could. There's an operational definition for true talent. So if if I have a, let's go back to the pitcher example because it's maybe with hitters, okay? But with pitchers, I'm, if we if I think they reflect each other. So sure. If I can if I can weaken the foundation of pitcher true talent, I think it should mirror back to hitters, even if I can't. Uh, state the argument myself. <laughs> Someone who focuses more on hitting perhaps can't. But if I have a pitcher who is, uh, an, just pick an age, 23 years and nine months, whatever, okay, a certain size and a certain experience level, and he throws a certain set of pitches. That morning, I show him a new grip and he goes out and pitches. What's it, what's, is his, did his true talent change? Like, yes. Okay. So that's, that's <laughs> your definition of true talent is more about skills and tools. Yes. So absolutely. Like, so okay. Good. So that's where you know that's where I think the the projection is 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 not is what are, what are their tools? So oh, I just came up with it. I'm so stupid. I, why did Mike? Why can't I think that there's a hitter reflection for this launch angle? Daniel Murphy. We, you know, our projections for a hitter are going to be based on the assumption that he doesn't start trying to lift the ball. Uh, so they're going to be wrong if Daniel Murphy starts lifting the ball. Our projections for such and such pitcher are going to be wrong if he suddenly learns how to throw a, a, a hammer, you know, curve that for for strikes to put up as a put away pitch, or he finally balances his, you know, wind up a little bit and, and suddenly finds his command and clicks. It's like so. Projections are going to miss if they're based on stats, but if they're based on knowing what the skills and attributes are and what their instabilities are and what their development or decline slash aging possibilities are, that, that's, that's where you can start to talk about potentials of outcomes. 
I mean, I, you know, Pakoda is and all these systems are great. They take the, the great care to, you know, go a few percentage points better than Marcel projections. Um, but they're all missing out on anything that's actually related to talent. So all these things about measuring performance and stuff, we want to get the talent, then you have to go further. You have to basically stop looking at outcomes. And we have much more data and material on pitching. We're starting to get on hitting right now, but we don't have enough stuff on swing path and swing speed quite yet. But with, with pitching, we have a lot of stuff. We can start, I think, projecting without looking at stats. You know, it's like the scouts, they don't scout the stat line, about minor leaguers. That may start applying more and more to major leaguers as we start getting more and more data that actually relates to skills instead of we're trying to estimate, quote unquote, true talent. It just. Yeah, I think that I think that maybe one a good way to sort of sum this up is we have for most of our history used outcomes as a proxy for whether you want to call it skills or you want to call it talent. Because that's what we can observe. We use what we can observe to infer the thi- about the thing that we care about. So we all, I think, in the discussion, we care about sort of the pitchers under or the players' underlying skills. You know, what does that translate to? We can't really observe the skills in any kind of detailed way until maybe the last decade because we don't have the kind of detailed information that we need. As we can better and better observe these component parts, these skill parts, it gets, we should theoretically get better at figuring out how good a player is and how good they're going to perform on these outcome metrics going forward. Because really what we want to do, theoretically, I guess in this exercise, is be good at figuring out who's going to perform well in the future. Or, you know, to some extent, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to figure out who are the good players. Um, And we do that so far by just looking at their previous outcomes, making some adjustments and inferring future outcomes. If we can, if we can actually observe really recent skill, then we should be better at inferring future outcomes. If the skill is a good predictor of outcomes, that's what we want to do. As we get better information, we should get better at doing that. I would hope. Um, But what I am, I sort of hinted at before, and I think you you know, touched on this quite a bit, is that players can change those skill levels in ways that we won't necessarily see happen until they happen. So a guy learns a new pitch or changes the way he throws a pitch or, you know, has a new training regimen or any number of things, we won't see that until it happens. And so that the, this fluctuating skill level because they have a good feel that day or all these other things. Uh, you know, a year or two ago, Justin Verlander changed the way he threw what he used to call, what we used to call a slider. He still calls it a slider. Now it's a cutter. It's a different pitch. You know, whether you want to call it, whatever you want to call it, it's a different pitch. Uh, other players, they change a pitch a little bit. It's not even perceptible to us until much later. That fluctuation makes this so hard because we're trying to shoot at a moving target and figure out how those things go together. It's very complicated. And so it's, you know, as Judge said, you know, a few minutes ago, uh, this is, you know, a a bit of a depressing conversation because how do we get much how do we get better at this uh, is is 
quite difficult to figure out. Yeah, so I mean, to that point, um, I guess, what's next? Where are we headed with all of this stuff? Um, and how do we continue to refine and make better and learn more about pitching and, and what makes a pitcher good and, um, you know, maybe who we want to draft for our fantasy team? <laughs> um, I, I do think we're probably, uh, you know, that's interesting. I, I think we're probably going to find, continue to find more little little tweaks and things like that that can make us make us feel better about our the end of season ribbons we get to, to hand out. I mean, I don't think we're ever going to stop um, enjoying those those shiny objects. So I, I think there'll be more sort of improvement there. But I think. Uh, I think Harry is also right that, you know, as we gain greater ability to um, to sort of measure the underlying actions that are going on, I, I think that's going to be a big, a big um, uh, improvement. I mean, one thing that I I may end up writing on, I think, um, you know, within the next few months is that, you know, multi-level modeling exists basically because we don't have good enough measurement data about something. You know, we don't have good enough measurement data about what makes a stadium a stadium. So we simply say, well, all I can tell you is that a lot of a lot of stuff happens at this stadium and I'm just going to keep track of that. Well, you know, the more that we gain the ability to understand what it is that is causing a home run, the more that we gain the ability to understand that, you know, it's elevation or it's the humidity or it's, you know, it, it's, it's just the way that something goes on at this particular place, I think the more that we're using actual measurements to quantify what's going into an event, I think that's where we're going to continue to start making improvements um, and get better at projecting. Uh, although I, I do strongly suspect that as far as projection goes, we may already be kind of going up against a ceiling of sorts. Um, but the one thing that to kind of take us back to something that was said early on about, you know, careers and some of the old triple slash stats of pitching, I really do think that, you know, for example, like he's kind of in the news at the moment, but, you know, Jay Jaffe and the Jaws system, I mean, he uses um, baseball reference war, which we haven't talked about at all today. And, you know, BWAR and, uh, you know, I, I don't know exactly why that particular choice was made when it was made. But I think in a sense, it's kind of an inspired choice um, because BWAR is based. Basically, it takes runs allowed per nine innings, RE9, and sort of just makes adjustments to that, but works off of that. And I think actually when you do that over the course of a very long career, that actually works pretty well. I, whereas I think FIP and DRA can sort of still be a little jaggedy um, when it's so focused on individual components. But, uh, you know, I, I think we'll – so I guess we're going to get more refinements and better measurements that are going to allow perhaps our projections to get a little better and our measurements to get a little more precise. But I think in terms of recognizing greatness over careers um, – I'm not sure we're going to have to change very much, and I'm not sure we should. Yeah, I think uh, a couple things that I thought of, you know, going forward. I think there is, you know, in the as we get better and more refined uh, Statcast data coming through, I think we're going to get a better sense of one how exactly how well a defense is performing behind a pitcher. That's been one of the kind of things, you know, we estimate it reasonably well, you know. Uh, um, like you were saying, baseball reference, you know, they make some adjustments for the quality of the defense. DRA does it. Um, you know, we have sort of that skill. As we get a better idea of actual positioning, 
I think that'll maybe clean some things up that have been, you know, tricky because a pitcher is going to play in front of the same defense most of the time. Um, the other thing I think is, and Judge and I have talked about this a little bit in the past, is that I think there is a lot of room to probably make park factors better, understanding how a particular park impacts the flight of a baseball. Um, I think is a place that we can really improve as now we get, you know, when we have six, seven, eight years of stack cast data, that's clean and good. And we can really dive into that. I think that's a place we can go, um, to sort of make things better. Um, I think, you know, and maybe back towards, you know, Harry's original thoughts. Um, you know, I think being able to see pitcher health, you know, a measurement of pitcher health, you know, it changing, and seeing it coming when a guy's something's happening to the way he's throwing the baseball, um, seeing that before it really starts showing up in the results. So maybe it's he's lowering his arm slot or, you know, there's more stress on his elbow, these kind of things. That might be a place where we can pick up some some information. But I do agree there may be a ceiling on the sort of preseason projection idea simply because so much can change between, you know, we have a certain amount of data from the previous seasons, but things are going to start changing going forward. Um, in a particular season, he's going to learn a new pitch. Something's going to change. Anything could be happening. Um, that's sort of when you mix that with the randomness of the game, you do lose some kind of ability. And that, you know, I don't think we need to be like super awesome, you know, projection, uh, creator in order to like enjoy and understand the game. Um, but I do think I do agree that, you know, working harder and harder to get a little bit closer is maybe not the best use of our resources. All right. Well, thank you, guys. Um, I really appreciate you guys coming on and talking about pitching metrics. Yeah, uh, I've learned a lot and got a lot to think about, too. And and we're sad and we're very sad now. <laughs> <laughs> our lives have no meaning. It's, it's not that sad. <laughs> <laughs> I still think, you know, <laughs> pick Chris Sale or Kershaw first as your first pitcher. Don't pick pitching too early. That's never going to change either. <laughs> so, I mean, but yeah, this is, I think, the, the way forward is, is I think we're, we're going to refine things, but I think the paradigms are going to shift. And uh, the time scales Neil's talking about are probably probably the right ones, five to ten years. But yeah. It's going to be good. That's, you know, the new information starts squeezing out of that instead of, the stones that we've been squeezing so far. <laughs> well, yeah, I think I think one thing that I tried to tell people when it so when Statcast first got announced, there was this huge excitement, and I understand why. It's you know has the potential to be revolutionary, but even if it was perfect on day one and all the information we needed was public and all these things, you still need a lot of data to really learn from it. And I think we need to sort of make the next leap forward. We need a new data source. And so whether it's StatCast, whether it's any number of things, we've drained a lot of the juice out of play-by-play and pitch-by-pitch data. And now we need sort of more complicated measuring tools to sort of help us take that next step. And I'm sure we'll get it. You know, someone's going to someone's going to have a, you know, a, a Mike Fast moment or somebody's going to have a Voice McCracken moment. But it's going to be a few years, probably. Yeah. You know, we're, and we're trying. Like we're 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 kind of. I don't want to say throwing stuff against the wall and seeing what sticks, but 
we're throwing stuff against the wall to see what sticks with things like the with with command metrics like using the, the framing side you know for pitching as part of command it's not all of it but it's a piece of it let's see if that's there the tunneling information that we talked about on the first episode of this podcast that's another one that's a big part of the you know which one of these things but yeah, it's going to be getting the stack has data, the player performance data, the, the pitcher health, fatigue, and conditioning. That's where the real big changes are going to come. Yeah, and I think we had this experience maybe starting, you know, late '90s, early 2000s, up until maybe you know 2012, 2013, where all of a sudden we got all of these smart people with good statistical skills looking back at. A couple of different data sets and then we get some baseball info solutions tracking data we get pitch effects we can make these big leaps we haven't gotten a new data source until statcast and statcast is still sort of in the infancy stage all the smart people did all the things they could do with what we had before so there's more to learn about baseball we just need to sort of look for that next leap and it you know when you look at in across other fields and you know sort of scientific revolutions elsewhere it takes time and then there's this big moment and no one can even imagine how they looked at the game before like so i am young enough that i didn't really follow things super closely prior to the to the dips discovery but i can't imagine like the people who watched that happen and like all of a sudden they just looked at the game totally differently. We're going to have one of those moments. It's just, it takes time and people throwing things at walls. And eventually, you know, you guys are going to have some article that changes all of that. I'm sure. You know, it, it was the tabletop game players who, who weren't surprised. Yeah. <laughs> we've done things like experimented with putting uh, an all gold glove defense behind, you know, pitching staff and seeing how that, and you know, so. Yeah. I remember uh, Jeff Sullivan said one time that his idea of heaven was just being able to like have being able to run experiments over and over again, like in with in real life. So the idea of like, what if I threw a curveball here? What if I threw a fastball low and away here? Everything else is the same. You know, that's the dream. And so well, the tabletop game is exactly like that. It's that what if we did this one thing uh, differently? How would everything else look? That's what you want to be able to do. We don't have that power because we're not, you know, omniscient and omnipresent controllers of baseball but the more data we get the closer we can get to approximating that so i think what we've concluded is that somewhere there's a a a nine-year-old child playing mlb the show who's going to have an epiphany during the game and will be our next baseball overlord i think that's probably right yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) that sounds fine (laughs) <laughs> I for one welcome our new child like baseball overlords. Yes. Uh, thank you guys. This is great. It's good to learn. Good to talk. I think we'll probably have you both back on again in the future. Um, but for for now, we we will bid you both adieu and with much gratitude. Thanks for coming on Stolen Signs. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you for listening. That is all we have for today. 
We would like to thank Jonathan Judge from Baseball Prospectus and Neil Weinberg from Fangraphs for coming on today, uh, teaching us about pitching metrics and history and um, kind of maybe where we're headed uh, in the future. Harry, we made it. Kendall, I've learned a lot. They've given me things to think about. For sure. And uh, that, that's the most important thing. I hope, and hopefully, you know, that as we, uh, we want to hear back from you, hopefully you learned something from that. And, uh, you know, let us know, people. It's, it's kind of strange out here. We're shouting into the void. So hit us up on, uh, on, on Twitter and uh, email. And Kendall will read you those addresses in a second. Uh, and let us know if we're doing a terrible job, decent job, or possibly even a good job at this new venture. Yes, for sure. Uh, so yeah, on Twitter we're at underscore. Uh, bleh, 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 bleh. See, I didn't want it read wrong, so See, I threw it to you. Yeah, just sticking me with it. So on Twitter, we are at stolen underscore signs, and our email address is stolen underscore signs at baseballprospectus.com. And we are also now on iTunes, so you can find us there. Rate us, review us. And tell us how we're doing there. That would be super helpful. I know that Apple does crazy things with ratings and reviews and uh, gets us in front of other people the more ratings and reviews we have. So uh, if you like it, give us a good rating. And if you don't like it, um, give us a good rating anyway. Give us a good rating anyways and leave a comment and tell us why it sucks. Support the baseball community. Yeah. All right. Well, until next time, I'm Harry. He's Kendall. Later baseball. The